If you would please turn with me in your Bibles, I invite you to do so, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 14 to the end of 21. It's a wonderful doxology that concludes this chapter. This is the very word of God. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth understanding." that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thus far with reading God's holy and infallible word. Before we um, launch into our text, um, the consideration of it, there is a fundamental exegetical principle that you and I must always keep in mind when we approach the Word of God. And that fundamental exegetical principle is this. Context is always king. Always king. Context never becomes subject to the text. The context dominates the text. To place the context as subject to the text has the potential to create a pretext for a context. And that's dangerous. uh, Context must always be king. And the text before us this morning highlights the importance that context is king. If you notice, in verse 14, it says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is that cause? If you have your Bibles open before you, you'll see that in verse 1, he says, For this cause. So what Paul is doing here is that He's saying, for this cause, he's referring to the cause that he mentions in verse 1, which in order to find out what that cause is, you have to be in chapter 2. And when we go to chapter 2, we we understand what the cause is. And it's a wonderful cause. 
Paul has argued successfully and powerfully that the Gentiles now belong to the household of God. And as Paul says, that was a mystery. And Paul was given the commission to declare that mystery as well as the other apostles that now in Christ Jesus, all those who believe in him are now part of the family of God. They're no longer foreigners and strangers of the covenant. They're now participants of everything that belongs to that covenant. And that has huge ramifications. How huge? You are part of the Gentile group of people. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have embraced him as your Savior for the forgiveness of all your sins, you are immediately part of the family of God. Fellow heirs of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what you are. And that's what you possess. And so Paul has this boldness to come before the throne of God on their behalf. And likewise, by virtue of our union with Christ, as one-time foreigners of the household of God, but now are part of the household of God, we have the same boldness to come before God. Paul here has a prayer for the church. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul's prayer for the church. Before I mention the four points, you have them in your bulletin, but before I mention them, when praying for the church... What would top your list of prayer requests? Keep that in the back of your mind. What would top your four um, most important requests when praying on behalf of the church? What things do you consider most important for realizing and maintaining a spiritual, vibrant, and vivacious church that is both active within and active without? Now, for some, it's a, it's a better youth program. For others, it's, the, it's that the expression of our God-given gifts would be exercised more freely by the members within our church, and that it's not only a few that are willing to do that. And there's for others, they have a desire that the building facilities would, uh, uh, would, would change so that it would accommodate the growing needs within the congregation. And then there are those that will pray for missions and evangelisms. And all those are good and necessary. But what does Paul pray for? Four things. That she be strengthened by the Spirit. That Christ dwell in her heart by faith. That she be rooted and grounded in love. And that she know the love of Christ. 
And Paul's requests boil down to those four because without those four, none of the other things that we're praying for will, will be realized within the church. All other requests will never rightly nor effectively materialize apart from those four. So let's look a look, have a look at these, those four individually. And may God impress upon your and my heart to pray for the church, the body of Christ, having these four requests at the top of our list. First, that she be strengthened by the Spirit. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, the scene before us is very touching, isn't it? That is, if you allow your imagination to take you away into the far-off land of Rome and a distant past in which Paul was. Paul's in Rome. He's in bonds or chains, as he mentions many times in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, verse 1, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Ephesians 6, verse 20. And he's chained to a Roman soldier. And that illustration, and he's going to use that as an illustration for the church being clothed in the whole armor of God. As we see in chapter 6. Paul just didn't grab that illustration out of thin air. No, there he is. He is chained to this Roman soldier. He's shackled to him. And he's looking up at him. And his mind goes. So here he is. And can you imagine that that Roman soldier? A hardened soldier. Seasoned soldier. And he sees this aged Paul get on his knees. Tell me if that's not touching. Ever hear your grandfather pray? He's praying for you. He's praying for your children. He's praying for for his grandchildren. And you're moved to tears. Paul's an aged father and grandfather. How's that? Because through the gospel, many have been born to Jesus Christ, the family of God through him. And he just doesn't say the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He includes those who are Gentiles, Ephesian believers. It's one of inclusion. And so with one word, with, uh, uh, he, he, he paints this wonderful picture of the family of God. And by virtue of our union, he is also our father. Those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's from him that all the riches of Christ, the riches of his glory, 
that Paul seeks to draw down the power they need in order to be strengthened through his spirit. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Spiritual power is a mark of every true Christian who submits in faith to God's word and spirit. It's not something that belongs to a special class of people, a special class of Christians, but for all those of the household of faith. Those whose minds are disciplined, and as well as their spirits who study the word of God and to understand the word of God and to live the word of God. Spiritual strength is not attained by some sort of osmosis. It is an action that you and I partake in, that you and I are involved in. It takes hard, disciplined work. It involves application of the mind and the setting of the affections on things that are above. And so if you want to be strengthened within the inner man, you have to dig deep into the word of God. You have to be like those of of Proverbs 28, a beautiful picture of men who go under the earth to mine ore, risking their lives, scaling steep embankments. That's what you and I are called to do, to mine God's word. Without it, we're not going to be strengthened inwardly. Not long ago, I read of a story of Michelle Payne. She was the first woman to to win the um, uh, a, a, a cup, the Melbourne Cup. It's a horse racing cup. And what that young girl endured to win that cup. Absolutely incredible. It didn't come without self-discipline, mental preparedness, hard workouts, hundreds of races, and numerous falls from her horse that left her with a fractured skull, a torn pancreas, six major concussions, four vertebrae fractures, broken ribs, and a cracked collarbone. All that for a cup. And of course, the question comes, what are we willing to do in order to be strengthened within the inner man? God doesn't wave a wand and say, here, you're strengthened. He's given us his word, and we're called to plunge ourselves into that word and draw from it the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when we draw from that, from the wells of salvation, we are strengthened within the inner man. And that's critical, personally, isn't it? Apart from that foreign strength, that strength that is drawn from the riches of God's glory, you and I are as weak as water, unable to stand against temptation, unable to fight against any spiritual battle, unable to make any spiritual progress, unable to stand against persecution, unable to make any advancement for the kingdom of God, apart from drawing our inner strength from Christ, who has said to us, without me, you can do nothing, we can do nothing. But, 
as believers, we not only have a personal responsibility to be strengthened within the inner man, but you and I are called as as those who are believers in Christ Jesus to look out for the well-being of others within the family of God. Don't interpret here or anywhere what Paul is saying through the lenses of American independentism. Never look at that. Look at scripture in that way. The Jews will look at you and they would be wondering, what are you talking about? Middle Eastern people don't view things that way. They don't think think in terms of independentism. They think in terms of family. Do you know that if you're a Middle Eastern person and you are in a country that you're unfamiliar with, but there's someone of the Middle East in that country. And if you go to them and you tell them who you are, you have been told your background, your ancestry. And when you relate that to the people that you're staying at, and if anywhere along the line they make a connection, they automatically take you in as family. So don't interpret what Paul's saying here as, oh, this is only for my own personal spiritual life. It's much more than that. It extends beyond you and embraces all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have responsibilities toward each other. No Christian is called to isolate themselves from the household of God. All have a responsibility toward one another. Age or social status doesn't exclude one from having a responsibility towards someone else. As Christians, whether young or old, whether elder or deacon or pastor or the mother who tends to her children, the mechanic, the plumber, the data analyst, the engineer, whoever you are, whatever age you are, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have a an obligation toward one another, to see one another grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What mother or father here would be content to see their child remain at the same size it was when it was born? It wouldn't take you or I long, very long for us to rush the little child to, to, to the doctor and see what's wrong with this little child. It's not growing. And so when you and I don't see spiritual growth, inner growth in one another, you and I should be looking out for that person and asking them questions. What's going on? Can I help you? But what else does Paul pray for? He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. Look with me at verse 17. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Every believer, without, without exception, from the moment they come to faith in Jesus Christ, is indwelt by Christ through his Holy Spirit. Paul knows this. He's not praying that they would come, as it were, for the first time, that Christ would come and dwell in them for the first time. That's not what he's saying here. Christ does dwell in them. What Paul is praying here is this, that Christ would dwell in them by faith, meaning that they, through the Spirit, would continue to trust in Christ to exercise his loving, gracious lordship over them. And what that implies is a permanent residency of Christ in them. It's not a Christ who comes to the temple and is only there for a moment and then leaves the temple and goes back out. It's a Christ that comes and enters and remains in the temple permanently. And you can see that. It's a visible presence. Have you ever heard the expression, this home needs a woman? Ever heard that expression before? I know I'm treading on dangerously dangerously close to generalizing, but as a rule, when a woman is missing in a home, the home doesn't seem like much of a home. There is this emptiness to it. There's this cold institutional look to it. You and I can walk, or rather talk the talk, but if Christ is not in us, we're going to come off cold, rigid. And people are going to know that he's not in us. And so when Christ dwells in your hearts by faith, there is this clear evidence that he categorically dwells therein. He's not a stranger or a visitor. And you and I exude a Christ-like aroma from us. Our faith gives evidence that he does. Just as the sun gives evidence of the, uh, the sun's rays give evidence of the sun, so you and I, if we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of Christ will be seen in us. Our joy will be real. Our witness will be real. Our love will be real. Our expressions of faith and all fronts will be real, genuine, and non-pretentious. This is what happens when Christ dwells in us. People will see it. They'll know it. That's what happened to the disciples, isn't it? There they are before the leaders of, of the people of Israel, and they're questioning them. And as they're questioning them, they see their strong faith in Jesus Christ, and they take note that they had been with Jesus. But that's not the only uh, uh, instance of where people took note that they had been with Jesus. In every act of love, 
and every act of kindness and every act of care. They will look at them and say, that person has been with Jesus. Lee Strobel, who wrote the case for Christ, said it was the actions of his wife, the radical change within, his, within the life of his wife that made him search to see if Christ was true, that it was really what he claimed to be. And when you and I have Christ dwelling in us, I guarantee you unbelievers are going to look at you and say, I got to find out more about who this Jesus is. The third thing for which Paul prays is that she be rooted and grounded in love. Look with me at verse 17b and 18. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is a breadth and length and depth and height. Although what Paul says here is a prerequisite of what is to follow, it is undoubtedly a part of his prayer request that they be rooted and grounded in love. It's not so explicitly, but implicitly. Because, you see, if we are to comprehend with all the saints, with the family of God, you hear that, with the family of God, what is the breadth, length, and height, and to know the love of Christ, as he says in verses 18 and 19, then it follows that we ought to be rooted and grounded in our love. And it doesn't here refer to God, but for one another. For one another. And the picture he uses to express what this looks like is that of a living tree in a solid foundation. Their love should be like a tree rooted deeply, twisting around the unseen but not unfelt rocks below. Their love for one another should be solid, impenetrable, unshakable by stormy trials and afflictions. It should be a love that receives the faithful wounds of a friend, the caring admonition of a brother or sister in Christ, the loving embrace of forgiveness and reconciliation, the mutual uh, thoughtfulness for one another's spiritual and physical well-being, and the compassionate tenderness that we express towards one another, those who are marginalized, those who are hurting, those who are in pain. That you be rooted and grounded in love. See, when you and I are rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith as Paul speaks of here, we will, as a consequence of being rooted and grounded, as Paul speaks of in Colossians 2, rather, verse 7, as a consequence of that, we will be rooted and grounded in love for one another. As members of the, fa- of, of the Father's family in heaven and earth, we will have a love for one another, and it's going to be rooted, and it's going to be grounded. 
And where it's not rooted and grounded, we're not going to be able to comprehend what is the, the, uh, the length and the breadth and the height of the love of God. For example, if you and I are not rooted and grounded in our love for one another, and we have communion before us, is it at all possible to experience what the tangible signs of his hearty love for us and really comprehend it? For example, if I'm not expressing love to my, to my uh, a fellow member of Christ's body, and we have communion, can I really deeply drink in the length, depth, height, of, and, 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 and begin to comprehend the, the, the love of God toward me if I'm not rooted and grounded in love towards my fellow brother and sister in Christ? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. It is absolutely important that you and I live in this loving communion, not only with God, but also with one another. For example, if your relationship with your wife is strained due to some circumstance in your life, and you're at odds with one another... I'm being vulnerable here. Do you sense that love, that deep and abiding love that you have for one another? And can you be unified in your expression of that love to your children? And your children are not going to see that expression of love as well. So our abiding and being rooted, uh, rather, and grounded in love for one another deeply affects how you and I will be able to comprehend the length, breadth, and height of the love of God in Christ Jesus towards us. I remember a number of years ago, this was extremely um, radical, in a former denomination that we belong to. This is when I was a young, a young man. And there were two women that were at loggerheads with one another. And that's not uncommon. I don't know of a church that doesn't have people that are at loggerheads with one another. And it was Communion. And they had a communion table up front, and people would come up front. And there was this one woman, and she was sitting there. Normally, she would be the first one up there, always the first. And she deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And she hankered back. First table went by. Second table goes by. And it's a third table. And she gets up, and she walks 
clear across the church to the woman that she was at loggerheads and says, forgive me. And she went to the table and comprehended the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ. Do you want that? I want it. And I know you want it. When we begin to comprehend with, then we will begin to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and height of his love. How wide is his love? As far as the, listen to what Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How deep is his love for us? Micah 7 verse 19 says, He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How high is his love for us? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up, Together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, Christ Jesus. So, Paul in this request asked that they might be able to understand together in community every dimension of the love of Christ. But he said, you must be rooted and grounded in love. And the last thing that Paul prays for is that she know the love of Christ. That she know the love of Christ. Verse 19b, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 verse 10, that I might know him. That is the greatest privilege of the Christian, to know Christ. No other privilege trumps that privilege. That I might know Christ and know the love of Christ. To know the unsurpassable, immeasurable, wonderful love of Christ. Solomon said, he said there were a number of things that were too wonderful for him. And one of them was, A man with a maid. And how much more so wonderful is the love of Christ for his bride. The church. Too wonderful. So wonderful. Isn't that so with us? Is not the way of Christ with his bride too wonderful for us to know? Is not the love of Christ to you, dear believer, too wonderful to fully grasp? And yet Paul prays that we might know that which is unknowable. And to know it personally and experientially. He loved me. Drink that in. 
a momentary glimpse of this makes me stand in absolute wonder and amazement. He loved me. He loved me when I was in sin's bondage. Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child and I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. He loved me with unconditional love. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, but you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. He loved you because he loved you. Loved you with an electing love. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I chose Jacob? Yet I loved Jacob. He loved me when, while I was yet in my sin. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. Hosea 3, verse 1. He loved me with initiating love. Here in his love, not that, love God, that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his only begotten son as a propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 19. He loved me with an everlasting love. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He loved me with sanctifying love. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, not I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me with a superlative love. Behold, what manner of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God? 1 John 3, verse 1. And it's an abiding, indwelling love. If a man love me, he will keep my commandments, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And he loved me with a perfecting, influencing love. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because he, as he is, so are we in this world. 1 John four seventeen, And it's an inseparable love. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Who? He loved me. He loved me, the idolater, the blasphemer, the Sabbath breaker, the insolent one, the murderer, the adulterer, the thief, the liar, the coveter, the backslider, me. With a thousand shameful skeletons in my closet, he loved me. loved you. He doesn't look into your closet and slam the door shut and say, no way. Not touching it. No. He loved you and came into the world because this world, when he came into the world, it was as if he was opening a door of a billion, billion times, a billion skeletons. 
And he came into the world to seek and to save those that are lost. And to draw them to himself with his amazing, wonderful, insurpassable love. If one of great resources, whose dignity and reputation were such that the world admired him, would condescend and take as his bride a prostitute, one from the, slums, uh, from the slums of uh, Calcutta, India, you and I would be absolutely filled with wonder and amazement and say, it must be because he was moved with pity. But how much more Christ, who not only loved in our pitiable state, but in our state of absolute rebellion against him. Much more so. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And when you and I in our limited capacity are trying to comprehend and know the love of Christ, we realize we're but taking a spoon and dipping it into the ocean of his love. That's what we're doing. Oh, to know the love of Christ that passes all understanding. Oh, how I wish that everyone here knew that love. Do you know that love? Are you still a stranger with that love? How my heart goes out to you. You don't know what you're missing. Don't know what you're missing. Because once you find and understand the love of God, in your limited capacity even, you will look at everything as lost and dung for the excellency and the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the, and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why will you perish? Come to him. Come to him with all your skeletons. In my mind, I see Jesus the loving Savior sitting, eating, and drinking, and demonstrating fellowship with who? Publicans and sinners, prostitutes. Eating and drinking with them and speaking to them of the kingdom of God. And what is the purpose for all of this of which Paul prays? Verse 19b. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, when I think about this, I think that if, 
If that were to happen here, here I, it would just, I would just utterly be obliterated. With this fullness of God. Do you understand what he's saying? This is enormous. That you and I will ever, that you and I will be what we're ever meant to be, and that Christ is. That's what we'll be. We will be as holy as God is holy. Can you fathom that? I can't. But it's it's true. We will be as holy as he will be holy. We'll be as loving as God is loving, kind as God is kind, selfless as God in Christ is selfless. And isn't that what you want to be, dear believer? Those of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ? That's what you long for, don't you? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know. No question about it. It's not a head scratcher. This is the real deal. We know. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But when Christ appears, when our mortal bodies shall put on immortality, and these corrupt bodies will put on incorruption, death in all its manifestations, physical and spiritual, will be swallowed up in victory. And we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the purpose for which Paul prays these four things. And that's the purpose for which your elders and deacons and myself and others pray. And I'm urging you. And I'm welcoming you. Come join us. And see what amazing things God has in store for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Indeed, no other name so precious, so desirable. And help us to declare him. And to that end, Help us to be Christians who pray not only for ourselves but for others. The things for which Paul prayed. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant unto us according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might 
by his Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And now unto you, O Lord, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto you be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.